You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So there is a, I'm sure you know this, there's a subtle difference between a, a lie and a half-truth, right? A blatant lie is something that has no truth in it whatsoever. It's sort of easy to, to spot. It's a complete and total falsehood. A half-truth, on the other hand, is when only part of the truth is told and the rest is withheld so that you'll be led to a different conclusion, right? The half-truth is way sneakier. They're not, they're not as easy to recognize as blatant and, and unbelievable lies. The, the New York Times gave an extreme example of this, of what a half-truth can do, when they ran a series of satirical obituaries a number of years ago. And they, these obituaries consisted of joyful photos of uh, certain men, certain famous men. Um, and on those nice photos were listed some, some uh, true things about them, making them appear to be these noble, exemplary leaders. Let me just read you some and you can see if you can guess. So one obituary reads... Writer, war hero, art critic, vegetarian, billionaire, time man of the year, 1938, orator, and son. Laid over a picture of this man smiling joyfully. Do you know who that is? Does anyone know who that is? Sam does. You can put your hand down, Sam. We know you know. That would be Adolf Hitler. Lived from 1889 to 1945. Uh, another one printed uh, on, on a man with his, his entire family describes a, quote, poet, a war hero, a seminary student, a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and a father. This man lived from 1878 to 1953. It's Joseph Stalin. Right? You see, all of those things are true things about these men strung together on real photographs, but they form half-truths. Why? Because they leave out key things, namely about these two men, that they are the most evil men in the 19th century, responsible for killing untold millions through their regimes. So half-truths actually are dangerous, misleading Subtle lies, right? That's what half-truths are. In the words of J.I. Packer, he says, quote, A half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And do you know who the master of half-truths is? Our chief enemy, Satan, the accuser. Scripture describes him as the, the father of lies, and he makes it his aim every single day of your life as a Christian to try and pull you away from the love of God, the security that we've seen in Romans 8, and he does this 
through cunning and deceptive half-truths. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. He tried to do this with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. When he tempted him in the wilderness, what did he use? He used the Bible. He used scripture and twisted it in an attempt to draw Jesus away from his mission. And he tries to do the same thing with you and I. And how does he do it? He brings charges of condemnation against us, attempting to condemn us. That's what he does. He says, you're not good enough. You failed again. How could God love a sinner like you? Your Christian faith is out of step with the rest of the world. So how do we answer those accusations? That's the focus of just two verses we're looking at this morning. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Paul is in the middle of this list of rhetorical questions that are meant to assure us of God's unstoppable love for us in Christ. His reasoning has been thus far because God is the author of salvation from start to finish, from foreknowledge to glorification, verses 29 through 30. Who can be against us? Answer, no one. Verse 31. He gave up Christ for us. How will he not also give us everything we need? Answer, he will. Verse 32. And now, this morning, the focus is upon this theme of accusation. Let me read it again. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's what we're we're learning from this text this morning in a sentence. The the Christian answers the half-truth accusations of the enemy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is equipping us to do this morning. And we'll work through these verses in two parts. First, the message of accusation, and then second, the response of the redeemed. Who's the accuser? What's his message? And then how do we as God's children respond in real time when those accusations come? So number one, let's jump in. The message of accusation. Now where do I get this word accusation from? Because it's not in the text, right? It's not used in the text. Well, the two questions here, verses 33... Who shall bring a charge? In verse 34, who is to condemn? They're essentially the same question. Okay? Paul is using legal courtroom uh, language here, which he has already done all throughout Romans. And we'll see it more when we talk about justification in a moment. And what he's asking is, who can bring a legitimate accusation against God's people with regards to their relationship with God? That's the question. Now we know, again these are rhetorical questions, so we know that the answer Paul is trying to get through to us is that absolutely no one can bring any legitimate accusation against the Christian with regard to their salvation. That's the answer, right? There's no, we're not wondering, we don't have to dig in the text what the answer is. That person, that Christian who has trusted in Jesus is solidified and secured in Jesus, full stop. But you and I know that there are many attempts from the enemy 
to bring those charges of condemnation against us. Telling us that we're not good enough. That we can't be loved by God. That God is not for us. And that's why Paul places these questions here. Because he knows that the weak and weary Roman Christians who are encountering and will continue to encounter suffering and persecution. And they're weak and weary just like us. They wrestle with this question. That's why it's here. So we have to consider who is this accuser? And what, what are the strategies of his charges, of his, uh, his accusations against us? Because you and I can't fight a battle, right, unless we know who the enemy is. And the beauty of God's word is that he doesn't just leave us in the dark about this. He tells us who the enemy is. He tells us what his strategies are so that we can be ready to respond. Now, we get a hint of this when I, when you've noticed, I've already just assumed that this accuser is uh, is Satan. The who here is Satan. Because notice, Paul isn't asking what can stand against us, what can bring a charge against us, what can condemn. No, he's saying who. He's talking about a person. And it may come through different things, culture, other people, but the ultimate accuser is the one of Revelation 12.10. Where Satan is described as the accuser of our brothers and sisters. That's the primary thing he does with the Christian. Now, when you and I tend to think of spiritual warfare or, or spiritual battles, it seems like we tend to think of the enemy, Satan, trying to get us to participate in some blatantly heinous sin, right? Like you're at church in the morning enjoying worshiping God and then like, maybe I should go rob a bank this afternoon, right? Sort of the extreme examples. Now, make no mistake, he does tempt to such blatantly evil, you know, and sort of commonly morally unacceptable things. But more often, all he's trying to do, all he has to do is convince you that God's love for you is not as sure and abundant as you think it is. He doesn't have to go for the great sin. All he has to do is get you to believe the lie that God can't save you, that you're not secure. So there's this inner voice, and this is often how it happens, right? I'm not, ta- I'm not saying you'll hear a, a deep sort of, you know, Satan voice. I don't have a good Satan voice, right, that's going to say these things. How does this often happen? It's this inner voice that says, you committed that sin again? He may still love you, but surely not as much as he did before, right? And you, you hear the half-truth, I did commit a sin again, mingled with the lie, he must not love you. And you, you start to believe it. And what happens? You slowly distance yourself from God. And the accuser smiles in victory. That's all he has to do. This is why in Ephesians 6, Paul uses a, a vivid picture to describe the enemy's strategies. Listen to what he says, 616, uh, Ephesians. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You hear that picture? That's war language. Satan takes fiery arrows of unbelief. And we know that's what he's talking here because the shield is of faith. So the arrows are those of unbelief and accusation. And he continually shoots them at you with the intent of killing your hope 
and your joy and your security in God's love. That's what the accuser does. Now, it's important to make a a distinction here. Because accusation from the enemy is different from conviction from the Holy Spirit. We have to know the difference. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit... God's presence in you makes you aware of sin in your life so that you may repent and experience closeness and joy of the Lord. Conviction is a good thing. It's the continual work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. And the goal is to draw you closer to God. Accusation from the enemy is different. He is not trying to draw you closer to God. He's not trying to convict you, but to accuse you. He's pointing out your sins not so that you'll repent, Not so that you'll experience the grace and mercy of God. No, his desire is to sow seeds of doubt that draw you away from him. He wants to condemn you and bring a charge against you. Now, that's who he is. What what does he do? Let's consider some strategies, some arrows that the enemy fires at us in accusation. I just want to consider four of them for a moment that I think are the most common. We see this in the scriptures as well. And as you hear these, listen and consider how you've experienced this and maybe even believe these in your, your own life. Okay, arrow number one. He tries to get us to doubt God's forgiveness. And here's this message. You're a wretched sinner. I mean, just look at the amount of sins you've committed over this past week. The thoughts that have come to your mind about other people. The selfish things you've done. The selfless things you should have done. Do you actually think that God is going to forgive all of that? Are you sure you're a Christian? You hear it? You hear the half-truth? Friends, The half-truth is this. There's truth in here. You and I, left to our own devices, are wretched sinners. It's not something we disagree with. We've committed grievous sins against God. And not just a while ago, but this past week. In thought, word, and deed. We are sinners. But we are not sinners who are beyond the grace of God and the forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what's left out. So you hear that message And you start to look inward. That's what he wants you to do. Not look outward to Christ, but look inward. And you doubt that God could forgive you. That's the first arrow. Second is this. Tries to get you to doubt God's providence. And here the accuser says, look at your life. Look at the the circumstances you're in. The difficulty And the suffering. There's no way God can be for you. If that's the circumstances you're going through right now. God must be against you. That's why life is so hard. And you start to look around and and doubt God's providence. His purposeful sovereignty for the good of his children. Regardless of whether things are going well or going poorly. And you forget what we already saw in Romans 8.28. That he works all things together for the good of those who love him. I think think this is likely the most common seed of doubt that the, the Roman church, the original audience was wrestling with. As 
persecution was slowly growing, right? But notice, the enemy can also get us to doubt God's providence when things are going well, right? You're experiencing blessing. And the accuser says, listen, you don't, de- you don't deserve this. You don't deserve these good things. You deserve a mess of a life, and God's probably going to drop the hammer at any moment. Right? And you doubt God's providential provision of blessing from God. And friends, there's half truth here. We do experience seasons of suffering. We do experience seasons of blessing. But, but here's what's left out. Both are in the hands of a sovereign God and are not indicators of how much or how little he loves us. Right? Arrow number three. He fires an arrow at us so that we would doubt God's persevering grace. And here's here's the message of the accuser here. You may be fine now, but there's no way you're going to make it to the end. Surely you're going to do something to mess up your Christian life and abandon the faith. Do you really think you can make it to heaven? And you hear the half-truth. Friends, if it were dependent, if finishing the Christian life, finishing the race set before us, were dependent upon you and me, then the accuser is right. We will certainly do things to mess it up. But friend, let me remind you of verses 29 and 30. Of Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Those whom he predestined he called. Those whom he called he justified. Those whom he justified he also glorified. Start to finish. Unbreakable. He who began a good work in you. Which is not you. It's Jesus. Will bring it to completion. Full stop. God's grace will persevere. To the end. Arrow number four. I think this is most common for us in our culture. He tries to get us to doubt our identity in Christ. Our culture is identity obsessed, personal identity obsessed. We put so much emphasis on self-discovery and we put all of that on ourselves. We have to look inward and define who we are and become who we must be. It's a high pressure. The enemy capitalizes on this. And the accuser says things like this. Why can't you just be better like so-and-so? Right? He's such a much better Christian than you are. Why can't you just be a better blank? Be a better mom, be a better husband, be a better worker, be a better friend, a father, student, pastor, whatever it is. You don't even do you even know who you are? You're not enough for God. The accuser loves to exploit our insecurities. And in doing so, Take our eyes off of Christ for our identity. Of course, the half-true here is this. Yeah, absolutely, there are ways where I can be better and you can be better. There's always need of growth in our lives. But we've seen this time and time again all throughout Romans 8. Our identity is not rooted in what we do, but who Christ 
is. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The accuser leaves that part out. So friends, I don't know which one might be common for you. Maybe there's one that's coming to your mind that we didn't point out. But we could list so much more. But notice, there is a common thread in these four accusations. And it's true of every accusation that the enemy hurls our way. See, he's cunning and he's deceptive, but he uses the same tactic over and over again. He's been doing it since Genesis 3. And here's that tactic. Every accusation from the enemy is an attempt to undermine your trust in God's word. That's all he has to do. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You hear it? You can pinpoint that strategy in your own life. Did God actually say that you're completely forgiven? Not based on any effort of your own? Did God actually say He's going to work all of your circumstances for good? Did God actually say that He loves you with an everlasting, unbreakable love? Brothers and sisters, can you answer those accusations accordingly? Paul's very concerned that the Roman Christians, that we would be prepared to respond to those half truths which are dangerous, soul-killing lies. Are you, are you acquainted enough with God's word that you can fend off the lies? Friends, this is, why, this is why we preach sermons from the scriptures. Right? No fluff, just sort of walking through the text. This is why we do studies in biblical theology. This is why gospel communities and DNAs are taking the truth of God's word and pressing it into our lives. It's not merely an intellectual exercise or a, or a sort of a, a ministry strategy. We are trying to put the sword of the spirit in one hand and the shield of faith in the other, for each other, so that we would be ready to fight off the arrows of doubt from the accuser. God's word is essential to this. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We know how the accuser is going to accuse us, and we're ready so we're not outwitted by him. May that be us as well. That's number one. That leads us to number two. So we have the message of the accuser. Number two, the response of the redeemed. So we spent a lot of time sort of identifying our enemy and his tactics. Now we're sort of preparing for the, the counter strike. Some of you like war illustrations. You're like, yeah. The rest of you are like, that's too much. But it works here. Okay? Paul uses arrows in Ephesians 6. So I'm running with it. Are we ready when he brings these condemning charges against us? Now, as a reminder, um, note that Romans 8 is entirely about what Christ has done for us. And that should give us a hint in how we respond to the accusers. It's Christ's work. It's Christ's battle. We're not looking for something within ourselves to respond. Right? Verses 33 and 34 are no exception to this. And he gives a number of gospel truths 
that show us that the accuser can't bring any charge against us, no condemnation against us. Let me read the verses again and see if you can hear these gospel responses. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right? Hear the answers there? So we have four arrows of, of accusation from the enemy. Now I just want to consider from these verses four answers to respond with. Here's the first one. Christ has chosen you, therefore you are secure. If you're a Christian, be amazed at this. Look at the title for you in this text. Paul calls Christians God's elect. Those chosen by him for salvation before the foundation of the world. We studied this in depth in verses 29 through 30, this unbreakable chain, right? And here's the logic. Here's what you can tell the accuser. If I've been chosen by God, predestined, foreknown, foreloved by him, not based on anything I have done or will do, but based solely on his sovereign grace, then you have no legitimate accusation to bring against me. Because what you're charging me for has nothing to do with my election in the first place. I can't be unchosen. I am secure. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. Because I am God's elect. That's what you tell the accuser. Second, second answer. You've been justified by God. Therefore, you're forgiven and righteous in Christ. He says plainly, verse, second part of verse 33, it is God who justifies. Verse 34, the beginning, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that was raised. So verse 33 is this courtroom legal language, right? Justification has two parts. First, you're acquitted of the crime. Second, you're declared righteous or innocent by the judge. The judge removes the crime, and then you're declared righteous or innocent. There's the removal of guilt and the covering of righteousness. In Christ, Christian, you have been fully exonerated. Your guilt has been removed. You've received the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, the accusations of the enemy cannot condemn you because the penalty has already been paid. We see a picture of this in our own legal system. The double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Right? It, it prohibits anyone from being prosecuted for the same crime twice. Friends, that's exactly what the accuser is trying to do. He's saying, you're guilty of this. And you respond by saying, yes, I am, but I have already been tried, and the price has already been paid in Christ. I'm acquitted of sin and guilt, and I have the righteousness of Christ. I failed once again, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.2 
Tell the accuser of Romans 4.25 where Paul states that Jesus was delivered up, crucified for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Case closed. I am forgiven and righteous in Christ. Not by works, but by faith. Not by anything I've done. The moment you start trying to point to, well, yeah, but I did well here. Or, yeah, but I did this. No I in the response to the accuser. Always Christ. He has justified me. He has forgiven me. Third answer. Christ is at the right hand of God. Therefore, the accuser is defeated. We see this in the second part of verse 34. Where is, this is something I think Christians don't think about enough. Where is the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, right now? He is ascended to his heavenly throne where he reigns as king of kings. That's where he is right now. Reigning victorious over Satan. When I was a pastor at a previous church, um, someone sent me a picture. They thought this was good theology. They were wrong. And it was this picture of the world. And over the world, Jesus and Satan were arm wrestling. Right? And they both had like massive biceps, right? Just they were like steroiding out, right? And I think a lot of people think of uh, Jesus and Satan, God and the enemy in that way. They think it's like this equal battle and we just sort of hope that in the end Jesus has the bigger biceps, right? And that he can, you know, pin him down. Friends, that is not the picture we have in Scripture. That's not what was accomplished in the gospel, Jesus is above all authorities. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he, here it is, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things, including the accuser, under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Christ is the enthroned king and the accuser is in submission to his sovereign authority. Which means one day, his defeat, which was enacted at the cross, will be fully and finally realized. We see this coming day in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. And I heard the loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. See, friends, Satan, is he's a sore loser. He's habitually angry and bitter because he knows he's defeated. And so he will throw empty accusations your way in an attempt to drag you down. But his defeat has already happened. And you... Christian are on the winning team. You can tell them, you're you're a defeated enemy. The game is over. I'll be in the locker room, right, celebrating with the team. You can bring no charge against me. Fourth, 
And finally, Christ is interceding for you. Therefore, you can be confident in God. See this in verse 34. Now what does this mean? Christ is praying, interceding for me. Friends, it means that right now, Jesus is continually applying the work of salvation to us before the Father. We sing it often here at church. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, do you hear that? Always lives to make intercession for them. So Christian, your ongoing acceptance before God is not grounded in how well you did last week. It's grounded solely in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And as Jesus brings us to the Father, intercedes for us, what he's doing is he's hitting the refresh button constantly on the gospel's application to your life. And this creates confidence in us, right? When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of your guilt within, upward, what should you do? Upward, you should look and see him there at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you who made an end to all your sin. No accusation can come against you. You can be fully confident in Christ who intercedes for you. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. You could add to that. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not listen to the accusations of the enemy. He goes on and says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, are we equipped to answer the half-truth accusations of the enemy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray we are. I pray we would take these lists and grow and study our scripture together and find more ways to respond with the gospel. When he attempts to to get us to doubt that we're forgiven, to doubt God's persevering grace, his providential love or identity in him, may we be ready to take up the shield of faith and rest secure in his saving grace. This is something we must commit to so that we can walk in the joy of the Lord. We must commit to helping one another do the same, identifying the common accusations of the accuser and learning how to respond with the gospel. Because the arrows of the enemy will keep coming. They will not stop until we meet Jesus face to face. But we can have confidence in Christ that no charge of condemnation can stand against us. What what good news. So I want to leave us with a a long quote, some counsel from Martin Luther. Luther was a man who greatly struggled with this, with assurance and fighting with the accusations of the enemy. In his commentary on Galatians, he gives us this counsel. He says this, When the devil accuses us and says, You're a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, Because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. 
And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, You do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Let's pray, brothers and sisters.